Bibles to John's Gospel this morning, chapter 17. If you're with us this morning and you don't have a Bible, there are men coming up the aisles right now and they have some Bibles. If you just get their attention, they'll get one into your hands. That way you can uh, listen to what's being spoken this morning, but then follow along with your own Bible, with your own eyes. And that's really important to me. And I like you to be able to do that. Sunday mornings, we're looking at the life and the ministry of Jesus in chronological order. And uh, we find ourselves in John chapter 17, picking things up in verse 6. John chapter 17, verse 6. Our Savior is speaking and he's praying to the Father. And he said, I have manifested your name to the men whom you have given me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me and they have kept your word. And now they have known that all things which you have given me are from you. For I have given to them the words which you have given me and they've received them and have known surely that I came forth from you and they have believed that you sent me. I pray for them. I do not pray for the world that is in this particular prayer, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours and all are my and all mine are yours and yours are mine. And I'm glorified in them. Now I'm no longer in the world, but these are in the world and I come to you. Holy Father, keep through your name those whom you have given me that they may be one as we are. While I was with them in the world, I kept them in your name. And those whom you gave me, I have kept. And none of them is lost except the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I come to you and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in them. I've given them your word and the world has hated them because they're not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not pray that you should take them out of the world. Rats. One day but that you should keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them for our purposes this morning. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. As you have sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. And for their sakes, I sanctify myself, that they also may be sanctified by the truth. Let's pray together. Thank you, Father, for your word this morning. We think about all that is around us, all that we witness each and every day, and to realize that though heaven and earth, Lord, is going to pass away, your word is never going to pass away, that it will have the final say in all of human history and every individual human life. We thank you, Lord, for the privilege and the peace that is ours for being able to build our lives and our eternities upon something that is sure, eternal, unchanging, your word, Lord. And we thank you for the privilege of being able to study it this morning, especially here to to study this prayer of our Savior. And we pray, Lord, that as we would study your word this morning, that your Holy Spirit would be very active in our midst and that you would sanctify us this morning by your truth. Your word is truth, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. In John chapter 17, we have what is known as Jesus' high priestly prayer. 
In Matthew's gospel, chapter six, there is a prayer that is recorded there. And Jesus gave it to the disciples um, in the course of his Sermon on the Mount. And it is commonly known as the Lord's Prayer. And most of us are familiar with that prayer. It begins, our father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven and so forth. That prayer has become known as the Lord's Prayer, and I think that everyone ought to hear this at least once in their Christian life. It is known as the Lord's Prayer, but it can only be his prayer in the sense that he has given it to us. The disciples asked Jesus, teach us to pray, and then he gave them that model prayer that includes about everything that we need to pray to God on a daily basis, and so he provided them with that prayer. Jesus never prayed the prayer for himself, and he could not pray the prayer for himself because within that prayer is a request for the forgiveness of sins. And Jesus, of course, was and is sinless and thus could never ask for the forgiveness of sins. So the prayer in John chapter 17, don't want to make a mountain out of a molehill, but it's more than a molehill. Technically, this is the Lord's prayer. His prayer that he prayed himself to the Father. And this prayer is a great revelation of his heart, of his mind. And so it's not merely a prayer that we have the privilege of eavesdropping on. It's a prayer that allows us to learn things about him that we wouldn't otherwise be able to learn. One of the fascinating things about this prayer is that Jesus prayed it out loud. He did not pray out loud very often in his public ministry. We know he had a tremendous prayer life. Uh, he would, we're told over and over again that he would rise early in the morning, long before the sun would come up and the day would begin to spend time with the Father in prayer and preparation uh, for the day. And so his prayer life was uh, consistent. It was daily. It was ongoing. But there's very few records of of him speaking in prayer out loud. And what we do have in terms of a records of his uh, public prayer are just very short kind of snippets of, of prayer. One time Jesus was uh, had been given the five loaves and the two fish in order to feed the five thousand. And as he held those in his hands, we're told that before he served them to the five thousand, that he lifted his eyes up to heaven and he proceeded to bless that food before it was distributed. He, he asked he asked blessing over the meal. And, and that's what he basically did there and to give God the glory for what everyone was about to receive in the face of their rejection of him at Chorazin and Bethsaida and Chorazin uh, or C Capernaum. Jesus lifted up his eyes in prayer when he received the report of that rejection in large part by the Jewish religious leaders of his day. And he cried out to the father. He said, I thank you, father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you've hidden these things from the wise and prudent and have revealed them to babes. And even so, father, for so it seemed good in your sight. All things have been delivered to me by my father. And no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son and the one to whom the Son wills to reveal him. And Jesus, as he was being rejected in large part by the religious leaders of his day, 
And when he heard about common people like you and me, uh, people that weren't highly educated, people that were looked down upon by the religious establishment of the day as being nothing. They don't know the Bible. They don't know God. They don't. This was the way that common people were looked at that were outside of the religious establishment. And Jesus looked and when he saw the common people that were coming to him that were so despised by the religious leaders, it produced a praise and a worship in his heart that he needed to and thanksgiving that he needed to express to the father at the grave of Lazarus immediately before he was about to raise Lazarus from the dead. Jesus prayed and he said, Father, I thank you that you've heard me. And I know that you always hear me, but because of the people who are standing by, I said this, that they may believe that you sent me. And he proceeded to raise Lazarus from the dead in instituting the Lord's Supper in Matthew's gospel, chapter 26. He took the we're told he took the cup and he gave thanks and he gave it to them, saying, drink from it, all of you. For this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. And so before that cup was passed, he asked uh, the father's blessing upon it. Now, why did Jesus pray this prayer out loud, except that he wanted his disciples to hear it? And not only did he want them to hear it, but he also wanted them to learn something about him as a result of the prayer. One of the things that we learn as a result of Jesus's prayer here in John chapter 17 is that he prays for us. I don't know about you, but about I can hardly think of anything that is more encouraging to me in my Christian life than the knowledge that there are Christians in this world who are praying for me. And I know that you feel the same way. Then you add on top of the wonder and the beauty of that knowledge, the knowledge of realizing that Jesus never ceases to pray for you and I as Christians. He never ceases to make intercession for us. Sometimes when we're, you know, riding the wave in and everything's going great in life and all, you know, the fact that Jesus prays for us can kind of be something like, well, that's, it's a, that's a nice fact to know. And if I'm ever on, you know, double jeopardy and that gets asked, I'll know how to answer it. But it becomes especially important to us and it hits all of our lives sooner or later. When we find ourselves in some kind of a mess, something physically has happened to us. In, in our singleness, in our marriedness, in our and the financial situation that is uh, gripping the world right now, spiritual warfare, when the bottom falls out in our lives to realize that he is currently praying for us, which means he has to be up to date on our lives to be able to be interceding, you know, currently related to our lives. And so. It's a beautiful reminder of us to us that Jesus is praying for us. Hebrews chapter seven puts it this way. Therefore, he speaking of Jesus is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always liveth to make intercession for us. Paul wrote to the church at Rome and he said, who is he who condemns? 
It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Now, Jesus prays some things. So it reveals to us that Jesus prays for us. And then it also reveals to us what is most important to him in terms of he looks at our lives. He looks at us individually as Christians. He looks at the body of Christ as a whole. And so we wonder when he looks at us, what does he think is the most important thing to pray for us? And it's interesting to look at the three, four, five, six things that he prays specifically for them and for us. It doesn't mean that these are the only things that he prays for us or the only things that he's concerned about in our lives. The Bible says that we are to cast all of our cares on him. Why? Because he cares for us. There's nothing that's too small. Sometimes we say, I'm not going to pray that. I mean, he's looking out for the whole universe and the whole world and all these people. How could he care about that? He's not finite like you and I, where he can be overloaded. He can take care and wants to know about the big things in our life. He wants us to pray about the smaller things in our life. And then he'll decide, you know, what's important or not important. But we shouldn't talk ourselves out of prayer. So everything should be lifted up to the Lord in prayer. What he lists here doesn't mean that he's not concerned about other things as well. So we ask ourselves, all right, the Lord prays for us. The next question is, what does he pray for us? And in this prayer, we get really some priceless insights into what he intercedes for us in particular. And there's three things in this verses six through 19 that I read that he prays for the disciples and for us here specifically. He prays that the father will keep us. We're we're people who are in need of keeping. He prays that the father would sanctify us. And he prays also very interestingly to me concerning our joy. And this morning I want to focus on Jesus's prayer for our sanctification there in verses 16 through 19. But before we do that, I want to clear one thing up so that some of you maybe a very small number of you, but you'll be thankful that I've done that. You'll sigh a breath of relief and then you'll enjoy the remainder of the sermon. Well, what a build up for what I'm about to say. Who can live up to that? One of the things that happens when you kind of read commentaries or if you've studied this on your own or listen to Bible studies, maybe on the prayer, of John, chapter 17, it essentially breaks down into three divisions that Jesus prays for himself to the father in verses one through five. Then he prays for the disciples who were present with him at that time in verses Uh, 6 through 19. And then he prays for the disciples that are going to come to know the Lord as a result of the ministry of these 11 disciples who were with him at that point in time, though Jesus wasn't just praying for them, because when he was resurrected, Paul tells us in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 17 that he was not only seen resurrected by the 11, but also by more than 500 who were still, most of whom were still living. So he's praying not just for the 11, but a lot of Christians who are alive at that time. Now, here's the deal. Some people look at verses 6 through 19 and they say, well, Jesus was praying that for the 11 that were with him at that point in time. So what he prays for here really has no bearing upon me. 
That's not the way to understand it. What Jesus does when he gets into verse uh, 20 there and he says, I do not pray for these alone, speaking of those who are with him, but also for those who will believe on me after their word. What he is saying is what I'm about to pray now in verses 20 through 26, I am praying for People like you and I that have come to know the Lord as a result of the ministry of the apostles. He's not saying that I don't pray what is it contained in verses 6 through 19 for them. I pray all of that for those that are present with me at the moment. All of the people that are going to come to know me ultimately. But I pray these things in verses 20 through 26 on top of these other things for those that are come to, going to come to know me in the church age. Because believe it or not, and we'll see it in one of the weeks we come to a little bit later, we face things as Christians walking with the Lord. We face challenges that they didn't even face to the degree that we do in that first century. And so that's why he praised a couple of things specifically that he prays in those verses. So my point is... <gasps> It all applies to us. So everybody on the same page, let's enjoy the Bible study then uh, here this morning. That's not really important to a lot of people, but it's important to some. And it's important to me. And so there we go. That's why I do most of what I do around here. Anyway, let's turn our attention to Jesus's prayer for our uh, sanctification. Verses 16 and 17. Let me read them once again and follow along with me. He said, of us, they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. So this tells me that whatever this thing called sanctify is, sanctification, it's really important to Jesus. Now, you're not you're not going to hear about sanctification. Uh, I don't. Who's using the term sanctification in the world today? I mean, it's not used commonly in the culture or or in the world. This is a word that is it's a Bible word. It's used by Christians. And so it's a good word. So when Jesus prays that we would be sanctified, that God, the father would sanctify us. I want to know what this word means and what what exactly is Jesus praying for me? And and so what is this sanctification that's so important to Jesus about our lives? The word itself means to be separated. And the idea is twofold. It means to be separated from something in order to be separated to something else. It's twofold. So we are separated from the world. That's what Jesus is praying, that we would be separated from the world and separated to the Father. And that's what happened when we were born again. We became, you picture a surgeon in, in a operating room. And he or she has this tray with all of these sterilized instruments that sit out on the tray. And when we became a Christian, Christ sanctified us, put us on that tray now for God to use us for his purposes in the world. Before, in our, our previous unsafe condition, what could he use us for? We are, we're so dirty, we'd have infected anything that he applied our lives to. But now being sanctified, we are fit for his use. And another meaning for the word means set apart for special use. Now, Jesus gives us insight into this meaning 
for sanctification in verse 16. When he prays concerning us, they are not of this world. That is a great definition of sanctification. To not be of this world. You've perhaps heard Christians say, if you've been around long enough, sooner or later you hear them say concerning us as Christians that we are in this world, but we are not of this world. And it's true. And that is essentially what Jesus is communicating in verse 16. We are physically present in this world, but we are not of this world because we do not share its values. We do not share its priorities. We do not share its definitions of right and wrong and good and bad. We do not share its speculations on, uh, on God and so forth. John wrote, and he put it this way in his first epistle. He said, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, and here's a description of the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away, uh, God's word says, and the lust of it. But he who does the will of God abides forever. So that's what sanctification is. Now, that raises another question in my mind. I'm a curious person. So the question that it raises in my mind is, all right, it means separation. It means holiness. But what in the world does that look like in the nitty gritty of my daily life in this fallen world? What does sanctification look like? What in the world is God aiming at as he is endeavoring to sanctify our lives as Christians? Again, I want you to notice in verse 16, Jesus said they are not of the world, but he didn't stop there. He went on to say, just as I am not of the world. In other words, Jesus is the definition of sanctification. He is the definition of holiness. He is the great one. That we can look at his life as we read about it in Scripture and say that that person, how he thought, how he acted, how he spoke, how he saw life. That is what God the Father is wanting to produce in me. Jesus is the definition of sanctification and the definition of holiness. And it is very important as Christians to run every definition of holiness through the life and the teaching of Jesus. Did Jesus say this thing? Did Jesus ever do this thing? Did he not say this? What did he not do in the course of his life? As we look at something where we're tempted to speak something or tempted to do something, and we ask ourselves, in the light of what we know about Jesus from the Scriptures, can we ever see him saying this? Can we ever see him doing this? And if we can, then it will match God's word and we can do it. If we can't see him ever doing such and such or speaking such and such, then we stop and we say, then what I'm about to do must not be holy. He is the definition of holiness. 
The reason that that's important to understand, and it is massively important to understand, is that even in professing Christianity, even among wonderful Christians, very well-meaning Christians, wonderful denominations, non-denominations, wonderful Christian people, there's this constant man-defining of holiness and sanctification, where man comes in and he clutters the whole thing up by saying, holiness looks like this, holiness looks like that, holiness acts like this, holiness acts like that, or speaks like this, or speaks like that. And then when you look at it, it's just man-made definitions of holiness being foisted uh, upon us. All kinds of man-made religious, man-made definitions of holiness that we have to resist. Even good things that people can sometimes come and say, well, you need to look a certain way, be a certain way. That If we can't see it in Jesus, as well-meaning as a person might be in coming up with it, as many problems as they may see that it may solve in a Christian's life in an impure culture, we have to reject it as a definition, a true definition of holiness, if we don't see it in Christ. Here's the problem that happens. We become Christians. We're a part of some particular church or we become uh, being discipled by uh, one or two people. And they tell us that holiness looks like this. And we proceed to invest the next ten years of our life in their man-made, extra-biblical definition of holiness. And then when it doesn't end up producing a true holiness in us or something that we can live up to, we burn out, we abandon it, but we've already invested ten years in it, a false definition of holiness. And so we jettison that definition and somebody is well-meaning, no doubt, is just waiting there to give us the next definition of holiness. And so we glom onto that, invest another 10 years of our Christian life into that and so forth and so forth until it's possible. And some of you can bear witness to it that you can spend decades and almost an entire life experiencing some other Christianity than the Christianity of the Bible and experiencing some kind of man-made holiness and never come to know Christ's holiness. Our lives are finite. We only have so many years to experience Christ this side of heaven and to live this life. All of these false definitions are, they're just rabbit trails that we run down and they're a waste of time. And there are so many Man-made definitions of holiness that look nothing like Christ. I'm endeavoring to inoculate us this morning through the word of God from feeling like we have to be in bondage to these kind of things and for our lives to be wasted by making something other than Christ and his life and what he spoke and what he did as the model for our lives and to not feel guilty about that. Being sanctified in this world doesn't mean being weird. There are some Christians that are just weird. God love them, and He does. I, I'm saved, and I cross the street to avoid them. 
God is my witness. I don't want, I don't want a, a conversation with them. I, they're not going to convert me to their goofiness. And I'm not going to convert them to what I see on things. I mean, if God tells me, I'll go. I don't, I'm not carnal on it. But there are some Christians in the man-made definitions of holiness. They just come off just crazy weird in this world. And then wonder why they ne- Christ-like goofiness and weird. Well, it isn't goofiness and weirdness. It's attractive by the Holy Spirit. People can respect that. But then people, they take on these mannerisms or they take on talking like that, talking about God this way and like this and that kind of thing like that. They just come up and they say, hi, Bob, how are you doing? Well, can I tell you about Christ? Well, you know, he kind good talking with you and everything. It's like he's a perfectly good human being. And then he started talking about spiritual things, went into some kind of a zone and came out of it. Christ never did that. And, and so you can do it, but it just isn't holiness. Now, I'm not picking on anybody and not putting anyone down. I need to hear it like that to keep myself free from this kind of stuff. Sometimes you got people think that holiness is just being very rude and very obnoxious. I'm being holy because I got this person trapped in this corner and I'm going to beat him black and blue with these verses before I let him out. Christ never did that. It, the Holy Spirit is a gentleman. Christ was a gentleman. People wanted to hear. He told them the truth. He always spoke the truth. But we don't have to throw our pearls before swine. There's no need to do that. And people have a free will to shut us up when they want us to shut up related to something. I remember one of the early witnessing experiences that I had. I had a guy, we were working in Emeryville on the, it had flooded downtown and the cables, it had shut the whole downtown down. And so we had been called in with some other guys to splice this thing all around. And so we went to dinner and, and all, and, and um, I was being just as gentle as a lamb. And, uh, but I, his name was Hector. And I, I said, we just got to talking about stuff. And he's talking about everything that's important in his life. And he said something. And, and I said, well, you know, it's interesting because Christ sees it this way and kind of that. And I didn't even, you know, trap him or anything like that. And he looked at me and he said, he said, don't talk to me about that kind of stuff. You're ruining my meal. He, he had this pack. Bell was paying for the steak, the biggest steak on the menu. But, I silenced up on it and I got to talk with him later at other times. But on that, I honored it. So it's not being spiritual or it's not being holy or sanctified to be obnoxious. It's also not being sanctified or holy for all of us to look the certain way, to dress the same way, to have the same haircuts, to, to wear the same clothes. There's wonderful diversity of personality and appearance and all in the body of Christ that gives you an inroad with the gospel to make an influence for Christ. Well, I could never speak to people in that way and vice versa. But there's these ideas that there's a certain kind of uniform or way of looking or presenting ourselves that's always holy. Those disciples were a very diverse group in every way. And we have the freedom to be who we are in, in Christ as well. And the Pharisees in Jesus's day, and he was up against a lot of this kind of stuff. But the Pharisees, they gave a great emphasis in terms of holiness and sanctification 
they didn't emphasize the inward uh, part of their lives, but they really focused on the outward part of their life. They're giving the appearance of being uh, holy. And uh, so they would uh, put a lot of time into that and or they would engage in very sometimes weird public displays of spirituality or spiritual uh, activities or sometimes just plain insulting behavior. The Pharisees, when they would walk out in the marketplace, they would take and they would wrap their robes tightly around their legs when they went through the marketplace so their robe wouldn't run into a sinner. And everyone was a sinner just about that wasn't a Pharisee. Well, that's some pretty good bridge building to the culture, wouldn't you say? Here's a guy. I mean, once the word gets out to the sinners, why those guys come out there and they're just like hugging their legs with their robe? They don't want their robe to come into contact with you, you dirty, crummy sinner. Well, before I came to know the Lord, if I'd have found that out, I'd have gone up and given them a bear hug and kissed them right on the lips. See what they did. See how ceremonially undefined they would be. So God's done a lot of work in my life to change me and not be obnoxious. But that you could see this was just offensive in the name of God, offensive uh, toward people that God was trying to reach. They would go and nothing wrong with public prayer, but they would time their journeys out into the public uh, square for the busiest times in, in the day when it was the time of prayer. So they find themselves on a particular street corner and the busiest street corner in town would it be the time of prayer. So they could then stop, lift up their head to heaven and begin to pray on the street corner. Nothing long, wrong with doing that if it was just accidental and it just happened that way and all public prayer is great. I engage in it on a weekly basis here, but not to be seen of men. And so this is what they would do. Jesus comes in, and in terms of wrapping the robe around and all of that, Jesus took that definition of holiness, and he just threw it by the wayside when he would go in and he would eat and drink with sinners. He wouldn't come down to their level, but he would, he would be with them in their different settings. Concerning prayer, Jesus said, and when you pray to us as disciples, he said, don't be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the corners of the streets, that they may be seen by men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. But you, when you pray, go into your room. When you've shut your door, pray to your father who is in the secret place. And your father who sees in secret will reward you openly. They had different categories of Pharisees in those days based upon some of their odd uh, kind of sanctification views. There was what was called the humbling a Pharisee who, in order to appear humble, would always hang his head down. So a chiropractor's dream. But this was, you know, to give this impression of, of being humble. There was also what was known as the bleeding Pharisee who, in order not to see a woman, walked with his eyes closed and uh, thus met with frequent wounds. And so he became known as the bleeding Pharisee. There was the mortar Pharisee who wore a mortar-shaped cap to cover his eyes in order that he wouldn't be able to see anything indecent or unholy. So, again, in terms of outward wear and this, this kind of stuff uh, that, that uh, they, they would do. The point is, there are a lot of people who are put off concerning God and put off concerning Christianity because of man-made traditions that have nothing to do 
with true holiness. And I'll tell you, there's a group of us in the body of Christ who were, were, were more in the legalistic vein. We're serious about our relationship with the Lord. Others are too. But I mean, we drift toward the Pharisee side of things. We love God. We really want to please God. And we're suckers for these kind of definitions. Even when we know the Bible, we're suckers for this kind of stuff. And we need, the, we need Jesus to come in and to pray for us and to ask the Father to keep us unencumbered by this kind of stuff. Jesus is the living definition of holiness. No one has ever done nor ever will live a holier life than Christ lived. And the life that Christ lived was never in violation of God's word. He said, I didn't come to destroy the law and the prophets. I came to fulfill the law and the prophets. He said, I always do those things that please the father. We'll never go wrong. Keeping him is our example in sanctification. Well, if sanctification is that important to God and to Jesus and thus to us, the next question that's raised is how in the world does that happen? And in verse 17, one of the most important keys to our sanctification, Jesus declares, is the place that we give to the word of God in our lives. He said, sanctify them. Didn't stop there, though. He said, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. He says he prayed for our sanctification by the word of God, the Bible. It sanctifies our life. How in the world does the Bible sanctify our lives? One of the things that it does is it washes us and it cleanses us when we read it. Paul wrote to the church at Ephesus and he spoke of the impact of the word in the terminology of washing, the washing with the water of the word, he said. Daily washing as we read the word of God, as we study the word of God, it daily washes away the world's Attitudes that have attached themselves to us, its perspectives, its priorities and temptations, its ongoing attempts to uh, conform us and the pressure that it, it puts upon us to become like it instead of like Christ. Think of it like this. Just as we bathe each day to remove the physical dirt and filth that attaches itself to us in this fallen world in the same way our minds and our hearts need to be washed from the moral and mental and intellectual so-called filth that attaches itself to our heart and to our mind. We are not just physical beings. Our whole lives are affected by the fallenness and the filth and the dirt of this world. And so just as you and I get dirty on a daily basis, physically and outwardly, there is all manner of filth that is attaching itself to our thinking, injecting itself into our minds, into our hearts, our emotions, our attitudes. As surely as you and I have something that needs to be washed off every day in a bath 
or a shower physically, we have just as much and more that needs to be washed off of our minds and off of our hearts as pilgrims in this world. And if it doesn't get washed off, we are going to, in the words of the New Testament, stinketh. Martha said to Jesus concerning Lazarus in the tomb, by now he stinketh. You take any person. I have no intention of being offensive to anyone here. You take a person who ceases to bathe. A person that doesn't bathe for a day, doesn't bathe for a week, doesn't bathe for a month. That person is going to accumulate the dirt of this world, the fallenness of this body that is, that is rotting and, and, and will one day give way. All of that all of that stuff begins to attach itself to us. And so we know immediately when we come into contact with someone who has ceased to bathe. How do we know that? They stink. They smell. There's a body odor that's coming off of them. The same thing is equally true spiritually of the Christian who does not give the Bible and the word of God a daily place in their life. For our thinking to be washed, for our attitudes in our hearts and our emotions to be washed. Yeah, we take the shower every day. We don't offend anyone in that way. But we show up at some family gathering or a home Bible study or at home in a marriage or raising the kids or at school or whatever it might be. And we walk into a situation and then what comes out of our mouth is something that just smells the joint up. It's an attitude that is just, it just, where you, somebody can look and say, man, your attitude stinks. Or your thinking really stinks in terms of how you're seeing this. And it's almost always a revelation that that person has ceased to allow themselves to be washed on a daily basis by the word of God, there is nothing like the word of God as we pick it up and we read it in the morning. Nothing like that sense of uh, there's that supernatural sense that occurs where all of a sudden we're being made aware of attitudes. We're reading God's eternal perspective, how he sees this, what he wants here, what is in our life that is different than that. And he begins to just wash it away from our lives. We rise from our time with the word of God and our whole heart and mind has been washed as a result of it. And so it washes us and it cleanses us in a way that nothing else uh, uh, does. And we give him praise for that. The word of God also feeds and nourishes our spirit. I don't know if you've noticed as a Christian, but you've got two people living inside of you. I'm not talking about a Sybil thing or multi, multiple personality. But the Bible says we've got an old man inside of us. And that's the guy that we inherited. That's who we are because of our physical birth. That's who we are as a descendant of Adam and Eve. So that's sin nature that we've inherited from them. That guy, I'm born again. I'm on my way to heaven. God is making changes in my life. I wish that guy was gone, but he's not gone yet. He'll be gone one day. But there's an old Damien Kyle that lives inside of me, and I do battle with him every single day. But there's a second man, that's the old man, the Bible says, 
There's a new man, the Bible says, that lives inside of us by the Holy Spirit. So when we were born again in our second birth, the spiritual birth, it was the new nature that the Holy Spirit has brought into our lives. And that nature that lives inside of us, that nature loves Jesus. That nature wants to be like Jesus. That nature wants to obey uh, God's commandments. And that word of God, this Bible, it feeds the new man. Have you ever done something? We don't generally go hungry in the United States of America. But sometimes we can do something where we're involved in a project, maybe a work thing that's going on or some kind of a recreational thing that we're going to do. And we're really engaged in it hard physically, very strong. It's demanding a lot of us. Maybe a meal or two get missed as a result of it. And you uh, get to the end of it and somebody talks about food and you can almost taste it before it's been served to you. I mean, you're really, really hungry. So we've experienced that kind of thing. And when you get somebody gives you food at that moment, those first couple of bites that go into your mouth, I mean, you can feel it just radiate through your body. The nourishment that it's bringing, I mean, the body needs it. And then the energy and the nourishment that's going into the body. You remember Popeye get the spinach and the, the pipe and the whole thing and then bing, 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 bing. And so the, it comes in and... and and physical food does that in, in our physical bodies. But the same thing happens through the Word of God in the new man. Where we sit down, the hardest thing that a person will do in this world is not make a billion dollars, not amass some kind of an empire, this blah, 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 all the different things that people can think of. The single hardest thing that a person will do in life is to live for God in this fallen world. And it, it takes a lot of spiritual energy to swim against the current and the flow of what that world is about morally, what it, uh, its indoctrination, its temptations, all of those things. So spiritually, we are exerting ourselves in a massive way every single day. And the spirit man, the spiritual person, the new man, needs to be fed as, just as much as the old man, the physical body, needs to be fed. And to sit down after a day of going against the stream and, and fighting the temptation, making a stand for Christ sometimes, even within our own families and the price that we have to pay to do that. And we sit down, we open up the Bible and we begin to read it, and we feel the Word of God nourishing our spirit in just as real a way as that physical food does in our physical bodies. The Word of God does that. It sanctifies us. It, it is giving us strength in order to be uh, holy. Now, included in this prayer uh, of Jesus for our sanctification is the request that the Father would sanctify our lives as we obey his truth. And uh, notice in verse 6 of, of the chapter, it, it is assumed on the part of Jesus that a disciple of his will obey his words. He said, they have kept your words. So our hearts and our minds are sanctified in the reading of God's word 
our lives are practically sanctified by the obeying uh, of God's word. As we obey his word, what it says about what we're to say and not say in life, what we're to do or not do in life, what we are to think or not think in life. Every time we obey one of God's commandments in his word, we are practically, physically sanctified as a result of it. Every time we obey God's word, it makes us holy and Christ-like in that situation. So when we look and we say, no, the Bible says in Psalm 101, I will set no evil thing before my eye. Wonderful little plaque to put on the television, by the way. When you say, I will let no, put, place no evil thing before my eye, and I obey that, the result is sanctification in my life. When the Bible says, I will not uh, 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 let no corrupt communication come out of your mouth, but that which ministers grace and edifies the hearer, and I'm about to say something to somebody, and I realize it doesn't meet that standard, so I don't say it, I say something else. I am acting in a holy or sanctified way as a result of obeying uh, the Lord's word. And so as we obey his word, every time we do, we become more and more sanctified, more and more holy. Now, why does God and I close with this? Why does uh, God's word accomplish this work of sanctification or this work of Christ likeness in our lives? He tells us in verse 17. Because his word is the truth. It's the truth. It's the truth about everything. It's the truth about heaven, hell. It's the truth about sin. It's the truth about creation. It's the truth about eternity. It's the truth about what's important to God. It's the truth about how to live the life that we live. As we obey God's word, as we obey his truth, we are in alignment with God in this world. We're in alignment even with creation in this world because it was created for a certain purpose to be used a certain way. And as we obey God's word, our heart, our mind, our soul, our strength, our thinking, our feeling, our emotions, all, all of these things, they get in line with truth. They're based upon truth. And it blesses our life. The reason it sanctifies, the reason that it does all of these things is because it is the truth. God's word is the truth. So if I deviate from his word and I say, no, I don't believe that that is true about how to conduct myself in this situation. I'm going to do something different. Now I am believing a lie and living a lie in that situation. It is only as I obey God's word that I am living in the truth, practicing truth as God intended us uh, to live and to practice. The reason that his word is so powerful in our lives is because it is the truth about how we're to use our bodies and our minds and our emotions and our hearts. When Jesus calls us to sanctification, in verses 18 and 19, I really close with this. I made a mistake. When he calls us to sanctification, of course, it's for our good. And of course, it's for his glory. 
But he goes on to speak there in those couple of verses. He says, I want you to I want them, Father, to live this kind of life. So that the people that still don't know me, like we once were among the people that still didn't know Christ. So they will come to know what true holiness looks like. What a relationship with God really looks like, not how man has fumbled it and muddied it, but it will really look like. There's a whole world of people out there that are still looking just like we were looking before we came to know Christ. And so Jesus prays for our sanctification in order that as we live our lives in this way out there, the people would look at our lives and in seeing what God has done, the miracle that he's done in our lives, that they would then have a hope that God would do the same kind of miracle in them. And it's wonderful to live a Christ-like life to give that kind of hope. Maybe most people aren't looking for that kind of hope and they won't accept it, but there are people that are looking for it. And it's worth living this kind of life, if for no other reason, and there are, are other reasons, than that they might be able to see who and what Christ is like through our lives. The old saying is, for the average person, the only Bible they're ever going to read is our lives. And that's the truth. Most people don't come to know Christ because they pick up a Bible out of nowhere and they begin to read it. Some people do. But most of them see a life that's been changed and is attractive to them as a result. And then they pick up a Bible to begin to find out for themselves. God is the biggest extrovert in the whole big universe. He wants everyone to know him. And our sanctification plays a very important part in people being able to get a glimpse at what God is really like as we live our lives here on planet Earth. Let's stand together and we'll pray.